Over the years, there have been many theories claiming that the Zodiac crimes were part of a conspiracy orchestrated by members of a satanic cult. One of the proponents of this theory was Maury Terry, a writer who became famous for his claims that the Son of Sam murders in New York were part of a satanic conspiracy. In a syndicated tabloid news show titled Now It Can Be Told, Geraldo Rivera and Maury Terry claimed the evidence indicated that a satanic cult was behind the Zodiac murders. But as usual, the facts tell a very different story. There is a theory that there was a conspiracy, a satanic conspiracy, involving not only the Son of Sam murders, but the Manson killings and killings across the country. These people to me. I didn't hate them. The word to do it. Well, Sam did it through me. He used me. He made me go out there and do it. He, I did it for him, for God. I say, hey, David, let's not go off the BS here. Well, you're trying to kid. I know you know who did it. The murder of the woman who knew too much. She was the key to this whole thing. She gave him that name, Zodiac. Now investigative reporter, Maury Terry. The name Zodiac was an occult name. This is Zodiac A to Z. The claims that Darlene Farron was involved in a cult, that she had witnessed a murder, that she was stalked by a mysterious stranger and killed to prevent her from reporting the truth to the police have been circulating for decades. Yet no one has ever presented any credible evidence to indicate that any of these claims were true. Like the stories that the Son of Sam shootings were part of a satanic conspiracy, the stories about Darlene may seem compelling and some people may think that these scenarios are convincing explanations for these bizarre crimes. But the facts reveal the many problems with the conspiracy theories in both the Son of Sam and Zodiac cases. Nisa Moskowitz, who, uh, her daughter was killed by the Son of Sam. How? Uh, she was shot. She was shot and the boy she was with, uh, he shot his eye out and uh, he's legally blind today. My daughter is dead. And um, Son of Sam's in jail. Son of Sam is in jail, but I don't believe that Son of Sam killed Stacy. Who do you believe killed your daughter? I don't know. This I don't know. I just know his name is Jeff, and he, he was working in one of the metropolitan hospitals as an aide. But uh, David Berkowitz did kill Dinah Loria. By the way, I am speaking for also um, Michael Loria. He asked me to speak for him. Whatever I'm saying is also for him. He killed his daughter. I mean, David killed uh, Don, uh, Donna Gloria. You are beyond what I'm understanding. I apologize. Donna Gloria was the first victim for David Berkowitz. Okay. You're saying Son of Sam did not commit all the crimes that he is accused of and that your daughter and one other person were killed by somebody else. Okay. What do you make of that, gentlemen? Well, there is a, a theory uh, that there was a conspiracy, a satanic, conspira satanic conspiracy, involving not only the Son of Sam murders, but the Manson killings and killings across the country. It's a theory, and it can be debated, but whether the theory is correct or not that they were co-conspirators, uh, David Berkowitz obviously was involved in at least some of the killings. They do have the right man. Whether they have all the men, that's of course Yes, he was involved in some of the yeah. killings, but he didn't kill Stacy. He was there. It was physically impossible to him to be, to have killed her. Physically impossible. The Son of Sam name reportedly came from the Sons of Sam Carr. Michael and John Carr have been named as possible co-conspirators who may have committed the crimes with Berkowitz. When he was first arrested, Berkowitz said that he was ordered to kill by demons who spoke to him through a dog near his apartment a dog owned by a man named Sam Carr. 
Berkowitz's story of the demon dog who ordered him to kill was apparently an attempt to portray himself as insane, but investigators did not believe this convenient claim. Berkowitz had harassed Sam Carr and his family, so the Son of Sam name might just have been part of his obsession. Maury Terry and others have made many claims about Berkowitz's alleged connections to other possible co-conspirators, including the brothers John and Michael Carr, as well as other individuals said to be involved in the satanic cult. What some claim amounts to overwhelming evidence of conspiracy is actually rather convoluted and often borders on the absurd. We're told that the same cult was involved with the Manson murders and many other crimes, but again, no one has ever presented any solid evidence to prove such a conspiracy actually existed. We're left with fragments, stories, possibilities, rampant speculation, assumptions, and what often seems to be little more than fantasy. Of course, Berkowitz has never named the cult members because he claims that his family has been threatened. FBI profiler John Douglas interviewed Berkowitz and he didn't buy the demon dog story. The BTK killer had mentioned the son of Sam in one of his written communications and Douglas used this fact to appeal to Berkowitz's ego. When Berkowitz continued to blame his crimes on violent commands from the demon dog owned by Sam Carr, Douglas thought that the explanation was absurd and pressed Berkowitz to tell the truth. Douglas described the exchange in a 1999 interview with journalist John Hockenberry. I interviewed Berkowitz at Attica Penitentiary, and I went up to him, I had the New York newspapers, and I said, David, 100 years from now, no one's going to know who John Douglas is, but 100 years from now, everyone's going to know David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, killer in New York City. I showed him the headlines, son of Sam terrorizes New York City, his, his eyes light up. So he starts in, he starts, t he starts in initially talking about getting the commands from the 3,000-year-old dog. I say, hey, David, let's knock off the BS here. Well, who are you trying to kid? And he starts laughing, he starts laughing, okay, oh, okay. And, and what's just interesting to me is since then, he's done all these wonderful things. He's found religion, and now he's, he's really kind of denying his involvement, uh, like he's kept us all to himself as, as the fall guy, uh, and now he's saying that was a cult type of thing, and there's other people involved. Well, how, well, you had the opportunity to say this for years. I mean, what, what's what's going on, David? Once more, you have a, a manipulative personality. Serial killers are manipulative, and he's manipulating us. And right he's still in, doing in it now. He's right. still doing it now. Douglas concluded that Berkowitz killed because he had deep feelings of inadequacy, resentment, and low self-esteem. David Berkowitz did in between his killings. He would go to the grave sites to, to, to visit his, uh, his deceased, the victims who he killed, to kind of symbolically roll in the dirt. Berkowitz admitted that he sometimes returned to the scene of the crime and masturbated while reliving the attacks. Berkowitz also confessed to police. He was eventually convicted of several murders and was sentenced to life in prison. During the shooting spree, Maury Terry was a freelance writer who sold articles about the Son of Sam killings. Terry focused on the sensational aspects of the case and played up elements of apparent contradiction or controversy, especially any information which appeared to indicate that more than one shooter was involved. One infamous crime became a linchpin of the satanic conspiracy theories connecting Berkowitz and the Son of Sam cult to other murders nationwide. Arliss Perry was 19 years old, working as a receptionist, and married to a pre-med student at Stanford University. On the night of October 12, 1974, Arliss entered the church on the Stanford campus. Hours later, her husband became concerned when she never came home. He called the campus police, who checked and found the church was locked. Early the next morning, a campus security guard named Stephen Crawford called police and reported that he had discovered the dead body of a young woman inside the church. Arliss Perry had been sexually assaulted, strangled, and stabbed in the back of the head with an ice pick left protruding from her skull. Her partially nude body was found near the altar, which was interpreted by some as a statement made by the killer. Semen was found on a pillow 
and a partial palm print was found on a candle used to abuse the victim. Comparisons indicated that the semen did not match Perry's husband Bruce or the security guard Stephen Crawford. The search for suspects continued, and years later, David Berkowitz indicated that the murder of Arliss Perry was somehow connected to the network of Satanists responsible for the Son of Sam shootings. In 1979, Berkowitz wrote a message which read, Arliss Perry, hunted, stalked, and slain, followed to California, Stanford University. According to some sources, Maury Terry thought that the campus security guard Stephen Crawford was likely responsible for the murder of Arliss Perry. However, Terry also believed that the victim was somehow connected to a cult and that this connection may have been behind the murder. In this scenario, Crawford was carrying out the crime as part of a cult conspiracy, and the placement of Perry's body in a church near an altar was part of sacrificial satanic rites. Maury Terry never provided any evidence to indicate that Arliss Perry was ever involved in any occult activity, or that Stephen Crawford was acting as part of any satanic crime or conspiracy. In 2018, DNA comparisons proved that Crawford had killed Perry. When police arrived at his door to arrest him, Crawford shot and killed himself. At times, Berkowitz talked about the Perry case as if he was privy to certain details regarding the murder from information obtained and or shared by other members of the satanic cult. If Crawford was not connected to the cult and therefore did not share information about the murder with Berkowitz or any other cult members, then the facts demonstrate that Berkowitz was lying about knowledge regarding the Perry murder. Maury Terry interviewed Berkowitz twice for television, and Berkowitz offered vague confirmations of some of the conspiracy claims without providing any real details or naming the other people involved in the satanic cult. Many people seemed to accept his word at face value, despite the fact that he first blamed a demonic dog for the crimes and then confessed that he had acted alone thereby establishing at least three different accounts and demonstrating that Berkowitz was perfectly capable of lying to suit his needs and minimize his own guilt. I've heard some people state that there was no way Berkowitz had committed all of these crimes alone, as if the crimes were somehow difficult to carry out or that the evidence somehow compelled us to believe that he did not act alone. The cult theory relies heavily on the foundation that discrepancies in witness statements and descriptions of the suspect somehow constitute evidence of a conspiracy. But the descriptions provided by eyewitnesses are notoriously unreliable in many cases. More importantly, Berkowitz did not require the assistance of accomplices to commit the murders but claims of accomplices have certainly helped him avoid taking responsibility for his crimes. David Burke was the son of Sam Killer. I mean, he went from an arsonist setting over 2,000 fires in the city of New York and, and progressed or deteriorated, however you want to look at it, into a, a, an infamous, famous uh, serial killer. David Berkowitz sent harassing and threatening messages to neighbors and stabbed two women on Christmas Eve in 1975 several months before the Son of Sam shootings began. He had already demonstrated that he was very much like other serial killers in several ways, so there was no reason to doubt that he was actually capable of committing the Son of Sam crimes alone and without the assistance of others. Like other serial killers, Berkowitz said that he often returned to the crime scenes to masturbate and relive the attacks. By any standard, David Berkowitz is dishonest, dangerous, violent, and mentally unstable. A writer named Kurt Rowlett talked with Wheat Carr, the daughter of Sam Carr, 
and the sister of the men accused as Berkowitz's co-conspirators, John and Michael Carr. She was emphatic in denying any connection to Berkowitz and said that her brothers had been wrongfully accused. She also stated that Berkowitz had threatened her family in the months before his arrest. Again, Sam Carr was the owner of Harvey, the black Labrador retriever that Berkowitz initially claimed had been sending him messages from demons to go out and kill people. Berkowitz had repeatedly complained about the barking dog and said that the noise was unbearable. Evidence indicated that Berkowitz shot Harvey the dog with a 44 caliber pistol, just like the weapon used in the Son of Sam shootings. According to Wheat Carr, the accusations against her brothers were just a continuation of Berkowitz's attack on her family. On Facebook, Wheat Carr wrote... Berkowitz sent several hundred letters promising to get even with my family by implicating Michael and John, something Yonkers Police Department and several New York City DAs could confirm. Berkowitz also sent bizarre and threatening letters to his downstairs neighbor, Craig Glassman, a nursing student and volunteer deputy sheriff at the Westchester County Sheriff's Office. Berkowitz also placed a bucket filled with gunpowder and bullets outside of Glassman's front door, and he then set the bucket on fire. There's been a lot of talk over the years about how members of law enforcement or the criminal justice system in New York knew of evidence proving that Berkowitz did not act alone, or that the murders were part of a satanic conspiracy. Journalist John Hockenberry stated that some officials did have doubts about the lone gunman theory. He said, what most don't know about the Son of Sam case is that from the beginning, not everyone bought the idea that Berkowitz acted alone. Surviving victim Carl DeNaro believes that Berkowitz did not act alone. NYPD officer Richard Johnson was reportedly involved in the original investigation of the Son of Sam shootings, and he believed that someone else was involved in the crimes because he could not reconcile conflicting statements and suspect descriptions from witnesses. Queens District Attorney John Santucci and investigator Mike Novotny also shared their beliefs that Berkowitz did not act alone. But once again, there's no evidence to indicate that they had any special access to facts about the crimes, which are unknown to the rest of us. I've seen the evidence that the theorists claim supports the conspiracy story, but I think I speak for many people when I say that evidence is pretty slim even weak at best. Investigators and prosecutors need real, solid evidence to build a case, and the so-called evidence cited by the conspiracy theorists doesn't even come close to meeting that standard. Whether the theory is correct or not that they were co-conspirators, uh, David Berkowitz obviously was involved in at least some of the killings. They do have the right man. Whether they have all the men, that's of course... Yes, he was involved in some of the killings, but he didn't kill Stacy. He was there. It was physically impossible for him to be, to have killed her. Physically impossible. So much of Maury Terry's case for conspiracy comes down to the timing of events by witnesses, as well as their perceptions regarding the passage of time. Conflicting eyewitness descriptions of the shooters and other alleged problems with the lone gunman account. Some of these issues were examined in the 2004 television documentary series Unsolved History, American P.I., starring private investigator John James Nazarian. Maury Terry appeared in the show along with writer Lawrence Klausner, author of a 1981 book about the Son of Sam case. Terry presented the case for conspiracy while Klausner represented the lone gunman version of the story. At the end of the show, Nazarian concluded that the conspiracy theory was not supported by the evidence. 
It's time for my decision. Reasonable doubt? Are you kidding? I've got to go with my own instincts on this one. You may disagree with me, but I believe Berkowitz is guilty as charged. There was no group or cult. The timing of events is often the subject of debate, with some claiming that Berkowitz was seen by a witness and did not have enough time to get to the crime scene. These claims are reminiscent of the debate about the timing in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Some critics of the official story claim that the timing of events indicated that the accused assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, did not have enough time to fire the shots, dispose of the weapon, and run downstairs in time to be seen by a police officer. This argument may seem compelling, but the fact is that witnesses can be wrong about the sequence and or timing of events, and when it comes down to a matter of seconds, it becomes extremely difficult to determine with any certainty what was or was not possible in the given time frame. Could Berkowitz have been seen by the witness at the specific time and then managed to get to the crime scene in time to commit the crime? The window of time was based on the witness statements regarding her actions after the encounter with Berkowitz, and it is possible that it took longer than she had estimated. I have to admit that I do not find the evidence of conspiracy to be compelling. And I should note that that wasn't always true. Back in 1988, I was one of those people who purchased Maury Terry's book and was fascinated by its shocking claims. The same thing had happened when I purchased Robert Graysmith's book, Zodiac, in 1986. After reading the book, I was convinced that the story inside was the truth. But after subsequent readings, I began to notice holes in that story, problems with the narrative, and many inconsistencies. When I started doing my own research into the case, I quickly discovered that the facts told a very different story. That experience opened my eyes to the fact that some true crime books are not so true. So I wasn't surprised when I began to question Maury Terry's conspiracy story, too. I collected many books, articles, documentaries, documents, and more about the Son of Sam case. And the more I looked at the material, the more I found the conspiracy explanation impossible to maintain in any reasonable or plausible scenario. Some witnesses had provided conflicting descriptions of the shooter, but it's not unusual for eyewitnesses to be mistaken when describing someone they may have seen only for a brief instant in a stressful situation. This is readily apparent when we view the composite sketches from other cases and compare them to the face of the person we now know to be guilty of the crime due to other evidence such as fingerprints, DNA, and more. Many studies have demonstrated that eyewitness descriptions and identifications can often be unreliable for a variety of reasons. In an article titled Eyewitness Testimony and Memory Biases, Professors Cara Laney and Elizabeth F. Loftus explained, Some factors have been shown to make eyewitness identification errors particularly likely. These include poor vision or viewing conditions during the crime, particularly stressful witnessing experiences, too little time to view the perpetrator or perpetrators, too much delay between witnessing and identifying, and being asked to identify a perpetrator from a race other than one's own. Experiments have shown that eyewitnesses are often mistaken about a suspect's description, including height, weight, hair color, clothing, and other details. In some instances, eyewitnesses provide descriptions which conflict with the descriptions provided by others who witness the same individuals and events. Witnesses also mistake other people present at the scene for the perpetrator. In one experiment, a college professor staged a scene in a classroom. A man entered the room, yelled at the professor, and then left. The students were asked to provide a description of the man. Some students accurately described the man, while others provided descriptions which were wrong on many important details, including height, weight, hair color, clothing, and more. In fact, in many experiments, participants were incorrect 
regarding their descriptions of the subjects involved and even the events as they occurred. One witness saw a man at a Son of Sam crime scene who did not match the description of David Berkowitz, who was also wearing clothing that did not match what another witness stated she had seen Berkowitz wearing just minutes before the shooting. This witness was sitting in a car and watched the man in the rearview mirror. A yellow Volkswagen was seen speeding away from the scene, and some people believed that the shooter escaped in this vehicle, but Berkowitz did not own a car matching that description. When it comes to issues like this, I think we have to ask some basic questions. What seems more plausible? A scenario in which eyewitnesses were mistaken about the suspect's appearance, or that they mistook someone else at the scene for the perpetrator, that someone who was at the scene became scared by the shooting and sped away in a car, and some eyewitnesses mistakenly assumed that this was the suspect's vehicle, or a scenario in which Berkowitz was involved in a conspiracy with several others, either with a small group of crazy kids or a massive network of Satanists. To me, the simplest explanation is that the witnesses are mistaken. Is it possible that there was a conspiracy? Yes, but the explanation with the fewest unnecessary elements is often more logical and plausible. A scenario where some witnesses are simply mistaken seems much more plausible than a scenario with a massive satanic conspiracy. She was afraid of the last two years of her life. And uh, I've seen him on eight different occasions. She's seen him do something. She's seen him kill someone. She told me to stay away from him. He was a bad man. And that's all she would tell me. Conspiracy claims also raised more questions about the plausibility of various scenarios including the theory that Darlene Farron was killed by someone she had known and that the crime was intended to appear like a random attack in order to conceal the fact that she was the real target. We're told that someone was stalking Darlene and that she often spoke about this and that other people were well aware of the stalker and his motive to silence Darlene because she had witnessed a murder. We're told that she was followed to the crime scene and deliberately targeted for death in a conspiracy that was specifically designed and orchestrated to silence her. And yet the informants claim that Darlene spoke openly about the stalker and the murder she had witnessed, so much so that she was not only chatting with her family about this on the night of her murder, but that she had already mentioned this to them before, as her sister Pam explained. Well, the night that uh, she was killed, she had come over to the house, my mom and dad's house, and I was there with the little baby. I, he was only 10 days old. She had told my mom that to uh, remember that killing I told you about a few years ago? Well, it's going to be in the paper tomorrow, so don't be surprised. With that in mind, I looked at Darlene and I said, what are you talking about? And she said, never mind, Pam, you get home with that baby. You shouldn't be out. So my dad comes walking in the room and he says, Darlene, are you scaring mom with those horror stories again you get out of here and get home so with that she leaves she doesn't tell her story because she ends up dead according to these stories darlene had already told people about the stalker and the murder meaning that killing her would not prevent these facts from being revealed and there are more problems with the theory that darlene was the target but the killer or killers wanted her murder to be perceived as a random attack by a madman. Anyone who was actually trying to conceal their connection to the victim and create the illusion that the victim was not killed by someone she had known would undoubtedly make an effort to avoid being seen with the victim in public, especially in the hours just before her murder. Yet we're told that Darlene was seen at her place of work 
arguing with a man on the night she was killed. Being seen arguing with the victim in public just before she is killed would only increase the likelihood that authorities would conclude that the victim had known her killer and that the argument somehow led to the murder. In a telephone call to the Vallejo Police Department, a man who claimed to be the killer also took credit for the murders on Lake Herman Road. I want to report a double murder. I want to report a double murder. If you will go one mile east on Columbus Parkway to the public park, you will find the kids in a brown car. They were shot with a nine millimeter Luger. I also killed those kids last year. By linking the two attacks, the caller apparently hoped to create the impression that the victims were chosen at random by a stranger. Arguing with the victim in public would indicate that Darlene was actually a target. But another alleged link to Darlene also raised questions about the stranger theory. After the shooting, someone placed telephone calls to Darlene's home and the home of her in-laws, creating speculation that the killer placed the calls to taunt the victim's family. The person or persons responsible for these telephone calls did not speak, and there's no evidence to indicate that the calls were made by anyone actually involved in the crime. Yet many people claim that the killer made the calls, which indicated a definite link between the killer and Darlene Farron. The calls understandably led to assumptions that the caller was the killer, but a killer who was trying to stage a deliberate and targeted killing to look like a random act of violence, would most likely avoid calling people connected to the victim because doing so would indicate that the crime was not a random act of violence. These problems expand in a scenario where the killer or killers planned to kill Darlene on the night she was killed. If the murder was planned in advance, then engaging in a public argument with the victim and calling her home and the home of others who knew her would only undermine any effort to make the crime appear to be random. The entire premise of this theory seems rather absurd when one considers that the killer allegedly targeted Darlene for death because she possessed information which she had already shared with others. As she told her mother, you're going to read about me in the papers tomorrow. And it never was uh, really uh, determined what she meant by that. Darlene was killed on a Friday night, around midnight. If a newspaper had been planning to publish a story about her on the next day, that issue would already have been in the printing process at the time of the murder, since the newspapers must be printed in advance to permit enough time for the delivery of the newspapers to vendors. Any story that Darlene Farron related and or was aware of pending publication would have been even more sensational and newsworthy after she was shot to death. And yet the story to which Darlene allegedly referred was not published the next day as she had allegedly promised to her family in Pam's presence. In a previous episode, I mentioned a law enforcement officer named Howard Buzz Gordon who claimed that he had a romantic relationship with Darlene while she was married. According to Gordon's version of events, he ended the relationship approximately six months before Darlene was killed, apparently because Darlene and her husband had purchased a house close to the home Gordon shared with his wife, and he worried that the close proximity could cause problems in his own marriage. Gordon stated that Darlene had told him about her involvement with an older man and their interest in the occult. She allegedly claimed that she wanted to leave the occult group, but feared doing so because her family had been threatened. According to Gordon, Darlene stated that she had traveled across the country with this man when she was a teenager. The description of this man and the purported timing of these events indicated that Darlene was most likely talking about her ex-husband, James Crabtree, also known as Jim Phillips. Darlene and Jim married in Reno on January 1st, 1966, 
when Darlene was 18 years old. They had met sometime between August and November of 1965. She then left Vallejo with Jim and reportedly did not return until October 1966. According to Darlene's mother, Darlene said that she and her husband had traveled a lot and spent five months in the Virgin Islands. There is no evidence that Darlene traveled with any other man before she met Jim Phillips or that she had been engaged in any so-called occult activity before she met him. In 1970, members of Darlene's family told police that Darlene's ex-husband, Jim Phillips, may have been somehow involved in her murder. The Vallejo Police Department investigated and did not find any evidence to implicate Phillips, who also denied any involvement in Darlene's death. Vallejo Police Detective Jack Mullinax shared his opinion regarding the ex-husband in a police report dated February 3, 1970, stating, quote, Phillips is in no way connected with the murder of Darlene Farron. The claims by Howard Buzz Gordon about Darlene's involvement in the occult are not substantiated by any evidence, and he appears to have taken her word for claims about her connection to a group which allegedly threatened her family if she tried to leave. There are many theories surrounding the murder of Darlene Farron and many proposed motives for the crime, including the theory that she had witnessed a murder and that she was killed to prevent her from talking to authorities. No one who had known Darlene ever mentioned any of this to the police during the original investigation, and Darlene's sister Pam never told police about Darlene referencing a murder story which would be in the newspapers. In 1977, a girl who had been a babysitter for Darlene's child told police that she had once seen a man sitting in a car parked outside Darlene's house. When the babysitter asked about the man, Darlene said that she had seen him kill someone and that he was checking up on her. Again, this person did not share this information with police in the years between the murder in 1969 and the time of her first known report to police in 1977. At this point, I have to ask you, the listener, some serious questions. Suppose I told you that I was afraid because I had witnessed a murder and now the killer was following me and then I was murdered. Would you mention this important information to police? Suppose police asked if you knew of anyone who would want to harm me. Would you mention that I had told you about the murderer who was stalking me? Would you consider my statements to be important information which could help police solve the case and find the killer? Or would you wait to share this important information until you talk to a psychic, an amateur sleuth, a reporter, or a TV producer. If I was murdered shortly after telling you that I was part of a satanic cult and that I wanted to leave but the cult members had threatened me and my family, would you think that information was worth mentioning to the police who were trying to identify the person or persons who had killed me? And if some people I knew were also murdered, would you tell police about my connection to the other victims? If you watched as the case remained unsolved, while a deranged killer was murdering others and bragging about his crimes in bizarre letters sent to newspapers, would you consider telling police about anything and everything that might help solve the case and prevent more innocent people from being killed? Maybe I'm naive, but I think that most people would immediately tell police all about the stranger, the witnessing of a murder, being followed, and the satanic cult. So I have to ask, what would you do? Some people claim that Maury Terry was a credible journalist who was just overzealous and went down a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories. 
but that explanation simply ignores the reality that Maury Terry was never really engaged in responsible investigative journalism in the first place. Maury Terry's exploitation of the Zodiac case served as a classic example of the many problems with his methods. In his appearance on Now It Can Be Told, Terry revealed the results of his investigation into the Zodiac murders. Joining me now is Alexander Johnson and our crime reporter, Maury Terry. Do we have real suspects, Maury? Can we tell the folks at home that we have some people identified? Is Stanley Dean Baker, for example, a suspect? I think people within Stanley Dean Baker's satanic cult, cult crew could legitimately be considered suspects. That was a rather stunning statement when one considers the fact that no one has ever presented any evidence to support those claims and that there was never really any reason to even believe that these claims could be true in the first place. And yet, Maury Terry sat there in front of that camera with a straight face and made those claims as if they were facts unearthed by legitimate investigation. In July 1970, 22-year-old Stanley Dean Baker and his accomplice, 20-year-old Harry Stroop, were hitchhiking near Yellowstone Park in Wyoming. A man named James Schlosser picked up the two men and sealed his fate. Within 24 hours, Schlosser was dead, his body was dismembered, and the parts were thrown into a river. Baker claimed that he had eaten the victim's heart. Stroop and Baker then traveled to California. On April 19, 1970, police were called to an apartment in San Francisco where they discovered the body of 40-year-old Robert Salem. He had been stabbed several times and was almost decapitated. One of his ears was missing, and the killer left a message on the wall written in Salem's blood, which read, Satan saves, along with the word, Zodiac. Police did not believe that the Zodiac was responsible for the murder and said that the killer was just trying to mislead investigators. Baker and Stroop were later arrested after a car accident. Police discovered one of James Schlosser's severed fingers in Baker's pocket, and he admitted that he was a cannibal. Baker claimed that he was part of a satanic cult known as the Four Pie Movement, described as a neo-Nazi satanic cult, a splinter group of the Process Church, which was an offshoot from the Church of Scientology. Baker claimed that he was acting on orders to kill from Four Pie, and that the messages at the Salem murder scene were meant to stir up panic in an atmosphere already tense from revelations in the Manson murder trial, which began four days before Salem was killed. Baker claimed that he had cast a spell which caused the drug overdose death of legendary guitarist Jimi Hendrix. Baker also claimed that he was Jesus Christ. Astute listeners may be sensing a theme here. Stanley Dean Baker was out of touch with reality. Later, Baker reportedly recanted his satanic conspiracy claims and admitted that his drug abuse was the major factor in the tragic murders. Baker and Stroop were arrested on July 13, 1970, a strong indication that they could not have been the authors of the Zodiac communications sent in the following years. No one had presented any evidence that anyone in the Four Pi movement was involved in the Zodiac murders, and no one had ever identified any of the members of the satanic cult who were allegedly connected to Baker. There was no reason for Maury Terry to claim that people within Stanley Dean Baker's satanic cult group could legitimately be considered suspects in the Zodiac crimes, primarily because he would have to identify the individuals who were allegedly part of that satanic cult in order to begin to determine if they could be involved in the Zodiac crimes. Baker and Stroop were both in custody after July 1970, thereby excluding them as the authors of the subsequent Zodiac communications. Maury Terry must have been smart enough to realize as much, so he must have known that there was no evidence that anyone in Baker's so-called satanic cult group 
could have been involved in the Zodiac crimes, especially when one considers the fact that Terry had no idea who was in that cult. Maury Terry claimed that members of Stanley Dean Baker's satanic cult group could legitimately be considered suspects, despite the fact that he knew there was no evidence to support that claim at all. It's simply not possible to overstate just how irresponsible Maury Terry's actions were in his so-called investigation of the Zodiac murders. Many of the conspiracy theories become problematic when one considers the alleged scope of the conspiracy and its participants. Some people believe that the Son of Sam crimes were not part of a large satanic network and only a group of crazy devil-worshipping kids were responsible. If that's true, we have to re-examine the other factors that Terry and others claimed were indications of a conspiracy, such as the suicide of the accused co-conspirator, John Carr, son of Sam Carr, who owned the dog David Berkowitz claimed had ordered him to kill. In February 1978, John Carr's body was found in his girlfriend's apartment in Minot, North Dakota. Carr had been in New York, but he left when he was assigned duty at the Minot Air Force Base. Authorities in North Dakota had concluded that the death was a suicide, but some people expressed doubts and believed that he had been murdered. In Maury Terry's inflated satanic conspiracy theory, John Carr was most likely murdered to conceal his connection to the Son of Sam shootings and prevent him from implicating the conspirators. This scenario seems even more implausible when we remove the element of the satanic network, leaving just the group of crazy kids in New York to travel to North Dakota to murder John Carr and staged the death as a suicide. But the group then allowed John's brother Michael to live for another 20 months. The suspicious deaths previously attributed to the cult by Terry and others were cited as supporting evidence of the satanic conspiracy on a large scale. But without that infrastructure of a satanic network of killers, the theory has little foundation or weight Without that massive satanic conspiracy, we're left with just a bunch of crazy devil-worshipping kids to account for all the actions attributed to all the co-conspirators. John Carr may have committed suicide over his guilt about his involvement in the murders, or he may have had other reasons for ending his life, which had nothing to do with the Son of Sam case. Or maybe he was murdered because of his involvement in the crimes. A counselor claims to have spoken to John Carr before his death and stated that he said he might be in trouble with the law in New York and revealed that someone was trying to kill him. Others claim that the Carr brothers had known David Berkowitz and some people claim that they were all members of a satanic cult. Over the years, many people have told many different stories about the Son of Sam case. Some people may be telling the truth Others may be inventing stories to get attention. Some people may think it's compelling when someone claims that they saw Berkowitz with one of the accused conspirators. But people can tell all kinds of stories. There are people who claim that they saw accused presidential assassin Lee Harvey Oswald with CIA operatives and mobsters. Or with Jack Ruby, the man who killed Oswald. Or that Oswald and Ruby were seen with other infamous figures accused in various conspiracy theories. These are often nothing more than stories which are not supported by any evidence. Someone claims that someone said something or was seen somewhere with someone else. That may seem compelling, but we can't pretend that's solid evidence. In 1978, David Berkowitz was interviewed in prison by attorney Felix Gilroy. At the time, Gilroy was representing a former police officer who faced charges for allegedly bribing a jail guard to deliver notes to Berkowitz and photograph the accused killer in his cell. 
Maury Terry joined Gilroy for the interview, along with investigator David Campbell and special prosecutor's assistant Thomas McCloskey. The questions quickly turned to the Carr family, and Berkowitz said that he knew John Carr, but he refused to say how he knew John and claimed that he could not remember when or how they first met. When asked if he liked John Carr, Berkowitz reportedly replied, No, I hated all of them. I hated their guts. He refused to say why. Berkowitz admitted that the reference to John Wheaties in a Son of Sam letter was a deliberate attempt to cast suspicion on John Carr, who was also known by the nickname Wheaties. When asked if he wanted John and Michael Carr to be falsely accused of crimes, Berkowitz said no and added, I wanted them dead. He described John Carr as an enemy and said Michael Carr was a devil worshiper. When asked how he knew that, Berkowitz said that he did not want to talk about it. Berkowitz had already claimed that the Carr family dog was possessed by demons who ordered him to kill, demonstrating that he was already capable of creating stories about demonic or satanic influences. Gilroy had asked about a witch's coven before Berkowitz described Michael Carr as a devil worshiper, an indication that Berkowitz may have responded to the suggestion of occult involvement. While he happily nurtured speculation that other people may have been connected to the crimes, Berkowitz never implicated John or Michael Carr as accomplices. Instead, he expressed his hatred of the Carr family and said, they made a lot of noise. Berkowitz sent threatening letters to the Carr house, including one which read, I have asked you kindly to stop that dog from howling all day long, yet he continues to do so. I pleaded with you. I told you how this is destroying my family. We have no peace, no rest. Now I know what kind of person you are and what kind of family you are. You are cruel and inconsiderate. You have no love for any other human beings. You're selfish, Mr. Carr. My life is destroyed now. I have nothing to lose anymore. I can see that there shall be no peace in my life or my family's life until I end yours. Berkowitz began sending the threatening letters in April 1977, months before he was arrested in August. In this conspiracy scenario, David Berkowitz was committing murders with the Carr brothers while he was also harassing the Carr family, sending them threatening letters, shooting their dog, and setting fire to their property. In May 1977, newspaper columnist Jimmy Breslin received a letter from Son of Sam, which included information the author claimed would assist investigators. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by NCIC. The Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, the Twenty-Two Disciples of Hell, John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls. The conspiracy theorists ask us to believe that David Berkowitz, John Carr, and Michael Carr were running around New York and killing people as part of a satanic cult, while at the same time, David Berkowitz was sending letters to a newspaper and trying to implicate John Carr as a rapist and a murderer. In his later television interview with Maury Terry, Berkowitz claimed that John Carr was the shooter at the last known Son of Sam shooting on July 31, 1977. In this conspiracy scenario, David Berkowitz mailed a letter to a newspaper in May 1977, which implicated John Wheaties Carr in the Son of Sam shootings, and two months later, John Carr not only remained in the cult group, but committed a murder with Berkowitz in July. Berkowitz was arrested in August 1977. John Carr died six months later in February 1978. Berkowitz confessed in court in May 1978 and was sent to prison. 
Michael Carr, died in a car accident in October 1979. We're told that these deaths are suspicious and that the Carr brothers were murdered to conceal their connection to the Son of Sam murders. The Carr brothers were relevant in the investigation because they were the sons of the man who owned the dog that Berkowitz claimed had ordered him to kill. Berkowitz had harassed the Carr family and others, and his comments that John and Michael Carr were devil worshippers and that he wished they would die indicate that his hatred of the Carr family was a direct result of his obsession with the Carr family dog. Berkowitz had already claimed that the dog was possessed by demons and reportedly said that the Carr house was infested with demons. These statements indicate that Berkowitz was locked into an obsessive theme about the Carr family and demonic forces, and his repeated refusal to say how he knew the Carr brothers or why he hated them was an attempt to avoid acknowledging the true origins of his obsession his rage at the noise caused by the barking dog. Recall that Berkowitz harassed other neighbors in similar ways, and his behavior makes much more sense in a scenario where Berkowitz was not engaged in a massive satanic murder conspiracy with the Carr brothers and was instead tormenting them as a deranged neighbor. Berkowitz sent threatening letters to the Carr home in April 1977, and Sam Carr contacted police. On April 27th, Sam Carr contacted police to report that his dog had been shot. In June, Sam Carr called police and said that he believed Berkowitz was the shooter. In this conspiracy scenario, Sam Carr was reporting Berkowitz to police over a period of months while Sam Carr's two sons, Michael and John, were engaged in a satanic murder conspiracy with Berkowitz. We're told that police are covering up the truth because they are embarrassed that the lone gunman theory has fallen apart. But police had little reason to avoid facts which led to accomplices, since doing so would only bolster the fact that they had actually arrested a guilty party and stopped further attacks on innocent victims. Identifying accomplices who were part of a satanic conspiracy, large or small, would also make police look even better than they did for capturing just one man. Police could only benefit from exposing a conspiracy of murderous Satanists, even if that group was only a bunch of crazy kids. There was no reason to suppress or ignore evidence of accomplices. The idea that police did so in order to avoid embarrassment is a rather simplistic explanation and a convenient distraction from the lack of real evidence to support any conspiracy claims. Blaming the police is a favored excuse offered by theorists who lack the evidence to prove that they have solved an infamous case. So the only people who are trying to hold on to the Berkowitz alone thing is a handful of ex-cops in the NYPD. Everybody else knows what happened. Everybody else knows. Does the evidence prove a conspiracy in the Son of Sam murders? The answer is obviously no. There are opinions that some evidence proves that he did not act alone. There are some stories told by some people about various claims regarding Berkowitz, possible accomplices, a satanic cult and or network, and some conflicting eyewitness descriptions of shooters, along with speculation, assumptions, and more. Unless Berkowitz is willing to name his accomplices, and police can establish any evidence to prove that these suspects were actually involved, it seems highly unlikely that the rest of the killers will ever be publicly identified or captured. We have to remain open to the possibility that there were others involved in the Son of Sam shootings, but that scenario comes with many problems 
which render this theory implausible. Is it possible that Berkowitz did not act alone? Perhaps. But the most logical explanation is based on the undeniable fact that the available evidence clearly implicates one individual, David Berkowitz. An eyewitness placed him at a crime scene. The parking ticket demonstrated that he was in the area at the time of the last known attack. He was arrested in possession of a gun like the one used in the shootings. His fingerprints were found on a handwritten Son of Sam letter left at the scene of a murder. And he confessed to the crimes. David Berkowitz terrified New York as the Son of Sam, and he claimed that he was reborn as the Son of Hope. But I think he's just a son of a bitch who killed a lot of innocent people and continues to avoid taking responsibility for his crimes while blaming others. I think his conspiracy stories are just another lie, another attack on the victims and their families. During one infamous outburst shortly after he confessed in court, Berkowitz shouted that, given the chance, he would kill his victims again. When Berkowitz was brought in, it was evident he was still agitated, wild-eyed, in handcuffs. And then he stunned the court, shouting repeatedly, Stacy was a whore, I'd kill her again. Mrs. Moskowitz was on her feet, screaming back, you animal. It's not justice, screamed a friend of the Moskowitzes. How much can the families take? Some people claim that this outburst was just deflection, or an attempt to appear insane. But I think David Berkowitz was just telling the truth. I think it's clear that he was telling the truth back then, when he admitted that he had committed the crimes alone. He told the truth then, but now he is perpetuating one of the greatest lies in true crime history. It seems clear that Maury Terry, Geraldo Rivera, and so many others were scavengers who exploited tragedies with little regard for the truth or those who may be harmed by the consequences of these conspiracy claims. Watching the old episodes of Now It Can Be Told, the reckless sensationalism seems so heavy-handed and transparent, just like Rivera's television spectacle on Satanism in America. Terry and Rivera were trying to get ratings by scaring people and preying on their worst fears. In a time when Americans had already been exposed to years of propaganda promoting the satanic panic. The conspiracy stories merged into one overwhelming nightmare, linking the Son of Sam shootings, the Manson murders, the Zodiac crimes, and many other cases to a virtually invisible network of evil Satanists killing hundreds of victims and moving among the rest of us in towns and cities all across America. Maury Terry may have believed all of it, and he may have fallen down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, as many critics and observers have noted. But I think he also knew that the satanic panic was a lucrative path to fame and fortune. Geraldo Rivera was no stranger to tabloid television, when he and Terry conducted their so-called investigation into the possibility that a satanic cult was behind the Zodiac murders. The manipulation of the audience was clearly designed to expand on Terry's fame as the man who had exposed the satanic cult on the East Coast and was now ready to bring his investigative prowess to the West Coast in search of more devil-worshipping killers. No one could have been surprised when Terry concluded that Satanism was also behind the Zodiac crimes. At the end of his book, The Ultimate Evil, Maury Terry wrote that he could hear a foreboding wail which rings through the urban canyons to the byways of Scarsdale and Bel Air and are carried on the night wind to the remote reaches of rural countrysides. He says it's a mournful and curdling cry. He says it's the sound of America screaming. 
That's just ridiculous and too deliberately melodramatic to be taken seriously. Frankly, reading Terry's words today, it's frightening to see just how absurd this all was from the very beginning. Terry warns that Americans are screaming in panic and fear of murderous Satanists as if he was observing some external phenomenon instead of creating the terror himself. The fact that the cult conspiracy theories are still so persistent in both the Son of Sam and Zodiac cases is disturbing and the lasting impact of the satanic panic creates new believers who make a deal with the devil. Zodiac A to Z Written and produced by Michael Butterfield Zodiac Voice by John Knight Zodiac A to Z Produced for ZodiacKillerFacts.com Zodiac Killer Facts.com